Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Holy Father, how truly awe-inspiring it is, Lord, when your word tells us that you are indeed for us. And if you are for us, then no one can be against us. No one can succeed against us, your people, your elect, to undo everything that you have done to save us and keep us saved. And what a joy it is, Lord, to our hearts as your saints to sing of such greatness, the greatness, Lord, that is yours, the greatness that we make our boast in as your people. And Father, we thank you for this evening that you have gathered us together, that you have assembled us in this sacred place to sing your praises and to open your word, to hear the truth of your holy scriptures, the infallible, the inerrant truth of your word. And we do beseech you tonight, Lord, that we will hear it most effectually. We will hear it to our greater and further sanctification as your people by the work of the Spirit taking this word of truth and taking it to our hearts for the sake of Christ, molding us, shaping us by it. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. I invite you to take the word of God and let us turn to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. As we are looking this evening at what I'm calling of ants and sluggards. Proverbs 6. We'll start reading at verse 6 to verse 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber. A little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. And so reads the infallible, the inerrant, the sufficient and authoritative word of the living God. This evening we return to our study series in the book of Proverbs where we have been carefully unpacking thematic expositions that we find peppered throughout this great wisdom book. Our focus tonight will be the self-inflicted pain of the sluggard as introduced here in chapter 6 verses 6 through 11 but then reappearing in the many concise statements of very wise observation and fact. 
What we should note in this passage is first how ultra-practical Proverbs gets in passing on the wisdom that we need in everyday affairs. We live in a real world where real choices have to be made that will result in real consequences for either good or bad. And here in Proverbs 6, 6 through 11, we have an excellent example of what God's wisdom in street clothes really looks like. That is the experiential outworking of God's wisdom. But second, we must also remember that Proverbs is divine wisdom and not earthly wisdom. So what we're being taught about the sluggard is not moralisms, just try hard and do better. No. Now what we're being taught here is God-given wisdom, which can only be understood and applied within the framework of trusting God with all that we are and with all that we have. In other words, the beginning of this wisdom taught in Proverbs is what Proverbs 1-7 tells us. It is the fear of the Lord. It is the fear of the Lord. And so we must never forget this since it is the foundation for everything which is taught in Proverbs. Now, with this before us, let's move on into our study of Proverbs chapter 6, 6 through 11, as we consider, again, what I'm calling of ants and sluggards. And under this theme, our aim is to consider what God's wisdom teaches in how to discipline ourselves. Reading verses 6 through 11 once again. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber. A little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. If becoming a surety for someone else's debt will run the risk of certain poverty, as verses 1 through 5 here in Proverbs 6 so teaches us, Solomon now brings attention to the most definite cause of economic impoverishment, which is choosing to do nothing for one's self at all. This is the plight of the sluggard. Now, who or what is a sluggard? Think of the way syrup oozes out of a bottle when it's cold. That is a graphic picture of the sluggard. Sluggish and slow and hesitant when he should be decisive, active, and forthright. His life motto is, don't rush me. Proverbs 26 verse 14 says of the sluggard, As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. He is lazy constantly making the soft choice, losing one opportunity after another and another and another, day by day, moment by moment, until he lies there helpless 
in his wasted life. And yet, we must all painfully admit there is a slugger deep inside each one of us. So here in Proverbs 6 and verse 6, while it is the first time in the book of Proverbs we're introduced to the sluggard, it will not be the last that God's wisdom alerts us to this kind of person. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, the sluggard appears 13 different times. When observing how Proverbs depicts the sluggard, there are three major character traits that are revealed. First, he will not begin things. He will not begin things. In verse 9, he is questioned directly. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? But such inquiries like this are far too definite for the lazy man. He doesn't know how long he'll linger in bed. He has no answer. And while he doesn't commit himself to a refusal, yet he deceives himself by an endless sequence of little compromises. So by inches and minutes, his opportunity slips away. So Solomon says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty comes upon him like a robber and want like an armed man. Second, he will not finish things. The sluggard will not finish things. On the rare occasions when he finds the motivation to get going, it, it is too much for him, and the impulse dies. Proverbs 26, 15 says, The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. What a tragic comedy. He does not stick with a task all the way through to a strong finish. The lazy man is a superficial man. You can never depend on him to come through. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 26 says, Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. Ouch. Painful if you're depending on someone who is lazy to do a job. Third, he will not face things. He will not face things. He comes to believe his own excuses. The sluggard says, Proverbs twenty-two thirteen. There is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. Really? Seriously? Where is the lion? I don't see a lion. But the lazy man does. And out of his fictitious excuses, he then vindicates them, even in the face of the wisest person. Proverbs 26, verse 16. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Now notice the number seven is being used there. This is, this is poetry, okay? Political, political, not political, poetical, poetical book. <laughs> What's on your mind, Pastor Kurt? Um, <laughs> poetical book in the scriptures. So this is poetical language 
So what we're, what we're seeing here is the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than one who is perfectly wise. Seven, the number of perfection. Okay? So in the face of perfect wisdom, the sluggard says, I'm wiser. I'm wiser. His irrational fear that restricts him to his house is rooted in his irrational pride that bars him from correction. You see, you can never correct a lazy man because he knows better than everyone why his lethargy is justified. As one writer put it, the sluggard is the know-it-all who rejects the counsel of others. Their calls to him to leave his bed and get to work, to be diligent and thorough in honor authority, to take on new challenges and not be content with simple tasks. Because of pride, he or she tends to regard others as buffoons and fools, especially bosses, employers, teachers, parents, and other authority figures. Sometimes this takes the form of actual mockery. But it always begins with a heart attitude of dishonor and disrespect. That is, it begins with pride. And what this tells us is that laziness, and this is so important, laziness is more than a character flaw. It's a moral and spiritual issue. It's a heart in rebellion against God and his created order, which created men to work. That's right, Genesis 2.15. Work, <laughs> work is not part of the curse. Now granted, many people would try to dispute that, but it's not, okay? No. Work is among those many creation ordinances that God instituted not after but before the fall. Okay? Very important. Very important that we remember that. But the sluggard, the sluggard despises what God designed as the created order. And because of his rebellion, it leads to a loss of freedom. Proverbs 12, 24, which says, The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. So there's the loss of freedom. Then there's the perpetual frustration of getting nowhere. Proverbs 24 in verse 34, which says, a, And poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it's repeated, and repeated for good measure. <laughs> but then also, there's a loss of life. And notice there's several passages in here. Proverbs 10 and verse 4, 
A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. You know, notice what the contrast is there. Slackness, diligence. Slackness, diligence. A slack hand causes poverty. And then Proverbs 18 and verse 9. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Wow. Those are severe words. Then going further, Proverbs 20 and verse 13. Love not sleep lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you will have plenty of bread. And then Proverbs 21 verses 25 and 26. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. And then there is Proverbs 24, verses 30 through 34. I pass by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and the stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. And then, lastly, Proverbs 28 and verse 24, which says, Whoever robs his father or his mother and says that is no transgression is a companion to a man who destroys. So one thing in the light of all of this that should be noted in Proverbs about the sluggard, I wonder if you've ever thought about this or if you ever picked up on it when you've studied Proverbs, if you have. The sluggard is never equated with the poor whose poverty is by virtue of circumstances out of their control. They're never equated with the poor. Whereas the sluggard is poor by virtue of his moral degeneracy. He is therefore not worthy to be called poor. He is not worthy to be called poor. Nowhere in Proverbs will you see the sluggard classified as someone who's poor. Well, what is the sluggard to do then? What does God's wisdom say to such a pitiful and pathetic person like this? Proverbs 6 and verse 6 says to all lazy people, Go to the ant, O sluggard. How humiliating is that? God doesn't tell the lazy man to go and get a Ph.D. in an Ivy League school. No. He tells the sluggard, go to an anthill and get your education. So what then does God's wisdom teach us through the ant to kill the sluggard in all of us? First, there is inner motivation. There is inner motivation. Solomon tells us regarding the ant, without having any chief, officer, or ruler, rather than having external leaders 
who both organize the work with regard to its nature and its timing and see it through to completion, the ant possesses God-given wisdom to work and just as significantly to order it wisely. By this example, the lazy man is exhorted, is exhorted to be a self-starter. A self-starter to get up out of bed and pursue the order of life God has called and designed for him to seek. No one should have to tell him to get up and work. He should just do it because that motivation is a part of God's image in all of us. So there is an inner motivation. Second, there is hard work. There is hard work. What does the ant do? She prepares her bread in summer. The ant is always active, always working. As one writer observed, rather humorously, under the hot sun, she scurries about and gets the job done. You are at a 4th of July picnic. You are relaxing, but the ants are carrying off the sugar one grain at a time, and they will be back for the Fritos. And yet such an example like this is paramount for the sluggard who, whose slack hand, we're told, causes poverty. God turns the lazy man to gaze at the tireless, excuseless industry of the ant and seems to say, this is what your life should look like. Diligently working, even when it's doing those things which are not for today, but for tomorrow. In the same way that God put Adam in the garden to work it and keep it, he's put us all in our little part of the world to work it and keep it. And we see this in that microcosm model of the ant. Third, there is future preparation. There is future preparation. Solomon tells us of the ant, and she gathers her food in harvest. The ant works today for tomorrow. Works today for tomorrow. And what we need to see by this is that what we do today will bring consequences for tomorrow, whether good or bad. This is true in both earthly things, but also this is true in spiritual things. Personally, I don't think many Christians need to be told this as it concerns earthly things. Most Christians I've known are hard workers when it comes to working and keeping the things of this world entrusted to them. But when it comes to, to the spiritual things, when it comes to the diligence needed by us to grow and mature as Christians, this is where I have witnessed gross laziness. So while we may not be heading toward a pitfall of economic poverty, could we be heading toward a pitfall of spiritual poverty? Could we? Let me ask you some personal questions. How constant are we in prayerful communion with God? Colossians chapter 4 
commands us to be continuing in prayer, to be diligent in prayer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 commands us to pray without ceasing. So how constant are we in prayerful communion with God? And how consistent are we in the reading, study, and meditation of God's Word? I mean, this is such a basic ABC, meat and potatoes kind of question to fellow Christians. But do you have a daily time where you're in the Word? Do you? Really? And if you don't, why? And don't even come up with excuses. You have none. You have none. No Christian has an excuse. No Christian is justified in saying, well, this is the reason I'm not daily in the Word. No excuses. It's sin. It's nothing but sin. And it's the sin of laziness. Constant, consistent, we should be in reading, in studying, in meditating on the Word of God. Have, how many of you have ever read all of Psalm 119? All of it, the largest chapter in the entire Bible. And what is it about? It's about the Bible. It's about your devotion, Christian, to the Word of God. Now, have you ever read through that entire chapter in one setting and then asked yourself, is that a reflection of my life? Probably not. But it should be. It should be. This should be the pattern of our life as God's people. But what about this? Are we striving daily to mortify sin and put on the graces of Christ? I was uh, reading this morning in God's Word, in my daily reading of the Scriptures, one of the books of the Bible that I was in, that I was in today was Colossians. And in Colossians chapter 3, Starting in verse 5 and reading on from verse 5, it says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, 
which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's what our life should look like every day. Every day. That is supposed to be our life. That's what we're striving after. That's what we're pursuing every single day as a Christian. Putting to death what is earthly in us. Putting on, clothing ourselves in those graces of the Spirit. Every day. Every day. And then lastly... Are we running with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith? This, is, and this question is coming directly from Hebrews chapter 12. And in Hebrews chapter 12, we'll just read from this text what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God what are we reading there are we reading something that's only for a special elite group of Christians, you know, the special ops Christians, you know, they're, 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 they're the, the special team of God's people. No, that's normal Christian life. That's just normal Christian living. These questions are biblical. All these questions I've raised, they're biblical. They come right out of the scriptures. But what do they remind us of? They remind us that it takes work. It takes real work on our part to live the Christian life. And while it is work which is not apart from Christ, again, this is not moralism, okay? Not just try hard, do better, it's not that. So while it is work which is not apart from Christ and his working in us, yet it is still something we have to do. It's still something we have to do. We are responsible for living out this new life that we have received in Jesus Christ. And it's no surprise, I'm going to reference this. This is my favorite passage in the Bible to reference under this subject. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God is working 
his divine energy, his divine power in us, and that divine energy is enabling us to will and work for God's good pleasure. But, but that willing and that working is going to show up in our working out what God is working in. And how do we, how do we work out what God's working in? How does that show up? Being diligent in prayer, being constant in the word, putting off the old man with his evil deeds, putting on the new man with his graces, running the race with endurance set before us, fixing our eyes on Christ. This is how we're working out what God is working in. But brothers and sisters, if we're not diligent in the things God has called us to do as his people, we will suffer for it. We will. The Lord will chasten us. We will suffer for it. But not only will we suffer for it personally, but the people around us will suffer as well. The people around us. Our laziness in the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life will not just hurt us personally, individually, but they will hurt everybody in the circle of our influence. They will. Because if you're not walking right with God, and I'm speaking to you as a Christian, if you're not walking right with God, guess what? You ain't going to be walking right with anybody else. That's, that's how this works. Richard Baxter, in his very famous book, written to pastors called The Reform Pastor. I remember the first time I read that book many years ago, and one of, one of the things that Baxter said in exhortation to pastors like myself is he, he said, this was one of his strongest exhortations, he said, be much with God. Because he said, pastors, if you're not much with God, he said, your people will be able to pick up on it. They will be able to tell. He said, and then you'll have to cry out and confess to them, I'm lean, I'm lean, I'm so spiritually lean. Because I haven't been much with God. If we're not much with God, it's going to affect everybody. It's just, that's just how it works. It's going to affect everybody around us. And so, as much as we should be diligent in earthly things, the earthly things the Lord has entrusted to us, we need to be even more diligent in the spiritual things. Exceedingly more. Because you see, it doesn't take a lot of grace, indeed, no grace at all, to be diligent in the earthly things. It does not. It just doesn't. We know plenty of unbelievers without the grace of God who are some of the most diligent people 
the world has ever seen. And look what they do. Look what they do. You know, and, and you, can, you can read the biographies of very famous people in history who just exceeded in diligence. But they did not know Christ. They, they, it wasn't grace that was, you know, it was just the natural man, the natural flesh, the natural strength that the Lord had given them, but it wasn't, it wasn't grace at work in them with that diligent in earthly things. But it takes the grace of God enabling and empowering us to be diligent in the spiritual things. And in one way that we need to be diligent is not letting ourselves be distracted by the earthly things, even the good earthly things, the things that are not sinful, things that need to be done. And we let ourselves get distracted and say, ooh, I need to do that and get onto that. But have you prayed? No, but I'll take care of that later. And we go off and we do these earthly things. John Owen, in a very challenging book that he wrote called Spiritual Mindedness, one of the most convicting parts of that book when I read it was Owen saying that we tend to give God the leftovers of our day and not the best part of our day. We give him the leftovers. What is the best part of your day? When, when is that part of the day that you are most alert, you're most, you're most conscientious, you're most awake, you have the most energy? What part of the day is that for you? Whatever part of the day that is for you, you give that to God first. He gets, he gets first dips on that. He gets the best. He does not get the leftovers. But how many Christians... How many Christians do you think give God the leftovers? And what typically happens is, is that when we give the Lord the leftovers, you know, we try to pray and what we end up doing, we're distracted or we fall asleep. We don't have the, our brain is in a total fog. We can't concentrate on the word that we're, we're striving to read, the scriptures and, you know, because he's getting the leftovers. Beloved, No. God deserves the best. He deserves the best part of the day from us. We'll give the world the leftovers. But God gets the best. Because he's worthy. He's worthy of that. But we have to be diligent. We have to strive. We have to work at it. And it takes work every day. By the grace of God. So, God's wisdom in warning us against laziness is an admonition that touches every area of our life, but especially our walk with God. Especially our walk with Him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, forgive us 
for every time, O Lord, that we have been swept away by the laziness of our flesh and not being diligent, Lord, to give you our very best. The best of our time, the best of our energy, the best of our concentration. We ask, Lord, your forgiveness for being sluggards in the things that matter most in the lives of we as your people, our walk with you. But Father, we make it our holy resolve tonight by the strength of your grace working in us to repent of our laziness. Not just in the things of this world, the things of this earth where we do fall short in not being as diligent as we should be and ought to be. But most importantly, Lord, we trust in you for the grace that will enable us and strengthen us to pursue repentance of our laziness in the spiritual things and our walk with you. Pursuing you in prayer, pursuing you in the word, making it a daily pursuit to put to death what is earthly in us, to put on the graces of the Spirit, the graces of the new man, the new creation that we are in Christ. Blessed Father, we beseech you and we trust in you for the grace to work and sanctify us to this end, to these things. We thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes and illuminating our understanding tonight to things about laziness that perhaps we were not aware of before and how serious, truly serious of a sin, of a moral issue this really is. Lord, where we are so guilty, we pray for a greater hatred, a greater disgust in our hearts towards this sin. May we loathe laziness, the laziness that we find in ourselves in whatever area of life it is, but most especially in our walk with you. These things we pray and these things we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And for his sake, amen and amen.